Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the Chai Break Podcast. This is your host, Shweta Ravi Shankar. And Ramachari from New York City. This season, we're excited to interview a roster of amazing South Asian women who have broken barriers, questioned norms, and continue to make a mark for themselves. They come to you from all over the globe, from Bangalore to New York, Melbourne and everywhere in between. We hope you enjoy these conversations as much as we do and chime in along the way. So let's get started. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Chai Break Podcast, where we've been brewing up some incredible conversations with South Asian women of substance all season long, or as we call Chaiversations. This episode comes to you on the heels of a lot of buzz around the climate crisis and what it means to live a sustainable lifestyle and making sustainable choices in our everyday lives in a world where prime delivery and everyday discounts rule our shopping choices. Right, Rama? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Tell me about it. Indeed, we're proud to introduce today's guest who walks the talk when it comes to all things sustainability. Niharika, beautiful name by the way, Neha Eliti is a sustainable fashion advocate and designer slash founder of Tega Collective. She uses fashion, art and heritage to bring awareness about sustainability and its importance. When joining the sustainability space full of advocates and leaders, Neha noticed that there were in many discussions about culture and ancestral knowledge. Since then, her goal has been to bring inclusivity and a variety of perspectives from BIPOC creators to the environmental movement. So hi, Neha. Welcome to the Chai Break Podcast. So good to have you here. Hi, no, thank you both so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it and have loved listening to the variety of incredible women and guests that you bring on your podcast and even yourself. So thanks for having me. Thank you. And one among them is now you uh, <laughs> in our podcast. So it's such a pleasure to um, get to know you and have this chivization. So let's go back to where it all started. So Andhra Pradesh in India, and for the audience who um, who don't know where Andhra Pradesh is, it's located in the south, and um, where Shweta and I are from as well originally. Well, Shweta is from Bangalore, Karnataka, and I'm from Chennai, Tamil Nadu. So it's all a collective of states in the southern India province. So uh, Neha, what was it like growing up in India and uh, your early observations and influences around sustainability and I am pretty sure it kind of, it has deeper roots from early on childhood. Yeah, uh, for sure. Of course. So I actually started off uh, growing up in Dallas, Texas, um, up until I was about 10 years old. Um, But for me back then, I think my limited knowledge of sustainability and and being a sustainable person was just, okay, make sure to recycle because they would just teach you, okay, recycle in school. Um, but beyond that, there wasn't really a lot kind of taught within education, which is obviously a problem around the world. But I didn't really see any local, accessible, climate-friendly kind of systems in the U.S. And then when I moved to India, age of 11, I just realized what a difference there was in the way sustainability was talked about, in the way it was practiced, um, especially from that South Asian lens, because for example, fashion. When I was in the US, I, I literally thought clothes were made by machines. I did not know that there were people behind those clothes. And I know so many people that thought that same way. And so, you know, when when moving to India and realizing, you know, when it comes to fashion, there's such a 
beautiful group of people that you or, or different people that you actually interact with even as consumers in India, right? Yeah. We know our local tailors. We know even our local weavers and handloom, uh, you know, the people who create incredible handlooms all the way to block printers and artisans. And there's just a lot more accessibility and awareness and knowledge of that. Mm-hmm. Um, even down to the way you buy your produce on the streets. Yes. You know, everything here is just in a giant supermarket or superstore. And obviously in India, I feel like it is um, kind of getting to that where people are starting to shop at supermarkets more yeah, often. But yeah. at least when I was younger, it was just a lot more accessible and even cheaper because, or, you know, cheaper for consumers to consume in a way that was sustainable versus in the US. It's, it's more affordable to go to a supermarket than to shop at a farmer. So all of these differences were just interesting to see how different the systems we live in are and how we can make them different if we want them to because they exist. Right. Um, so I think that was my main kind of understanding from growing up in two places, especially being surrounded by incredible arts and culture, you know, in India and having studied art growing up as well. I think that was a big part of my journey into fashion and sustainability. And those worlds kind of came together later in my life um, when I learned more about what was going on uh, behind mm-hmm. the fashion. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, just a little bit about my growing up. <laughs> yeah, no, that's amazing. And today you're like an active sustainability ambassador. So tell us a little bit about how you embarked on this journey and how all of that happened. Yeah, for sure. So for me, I think I realized how bad the fashion industry was around the time many of us did when uh, the Rana Plaza factory collapsed back in 2013. And there were, you know, like Mm -hmm. uh, almost 1,100 workers that were either killed or injured in that factory collapse. And so um, that was when I started becoming aware of it. But I started advocating for it online, um, I would say about four years ago. And kind of posting daily outfits with just different clothes that I already had in my closet. And it just kind of started very surface level where it was like, okay, you should thrift. Um, and I would kind of share different zero waste options. But as I read more and more and got deeper and deeper into it, I realized there's just so much more to it than, you know, simply kind of working with what you have, which is, of course, the most important thing. But it's also important to understand the systems that we live in and acknowledge them and question them and advocate for the betterment of those systems. And so uh, as I got deeper and deeper into it, I realized how important it was to share the differences that I was seeing in the global north and the global south and the way it was perceived and kind of bring those conversations into the movement because the movement was so very much focused on consumer-driven um I guess, consumer-driven just changes and lifestyle choices Mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. obviously the bulk of the climate crisis is being caused by these big fashion corporations and just corporations in general. So kind of pushing the obvious blame on them Mm -hmm. and bringing that into the conversation um, with many others in the same field was, was my goal. Yeah, that's really great. I think this is actually taking on and we're hearing more about these conversations. And almost in the last, I would like to say, four or five years, mm-hmm. with this whole sustainability movement has kind of taken hold 
new meaning. And right. it looks like even the bigger brands that you're just now talking about, like, for example, Zara and H&M and everyone else seems to be jumping into that on that sustainability bandwagon, right? But mm -hmm. the question is, are they really walking the talk or just trying to take a slice of the pie? Like, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I definitely think it's the latter, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, and I guess I can kind of break that down, um, mainly because the sheer scale at which they produce and the means that they use to produce their clothes itself are completely, you know, unethical and unsustainable for the planet as it is. So their business model at its core is built on speed, scale, and paying garment workers the absolute least that they can by outsourcing a lot of their, or honestly, all of their clothes to countries like Bangladesh, China, India, and them releasing thousands of styles, you know, mm -hmm. almost like the trend cycle has become so small that there's... Exactly many different styles just every week every week yep there are brands that do that yeah. exactly yeah and so beyond just that you know what they're rebranding as conscious in a lot of their um, collections is oh you know we've used this organic cotton we've used this recycled polyester or whatnot but I feel like a lot of people think sustainability is just about the fabrics that you use and them either being able to biodegrade or being able to reuse something but it's much deeper than that. It's how are you paying your garment workers fair wages? And do we know exactly what factories you're working with? How many pieces are you producing? Because, you know, thousands of pieces of recycled cotton is still such a large number. So you're essentially, you're, you know, that kind of cancels itself out mm -hmm. and you're not, you know, truly being sustainable in that sense. And if you're constantly making new collections, then that is just honestly a drop in the ocean compared to how much destruction you are causing. Yeah. So, of course, they're trying to take the slice of the pie and they know that it's trendy to be sustainable. Exactly. So. That That's what's greenwashing, right? Today, you know, that's exactly what they're doing. That's literally uh, what we were talking, right, Shweta, just before yes, this. Yes, we were just having a discussion exactly about that because yeah. also like in the vein of talking about like Zara, H&M and mm -hmm. all other these big brands, the problem also with trying to educate the everyday, you know, layperson like us who are consumers who shop mm -hmm. is that over time, are we've been trained, you know, mm -hmm. to look for those sales, to look for those discounts right. that, you know, like say a sustainable brand is selling something for like a hundred bucks, you know, we'd be like, oh my God, that that's expensive. Right. But say like Zara has like this limited edition, like, you know, whatever collection and you know, they're selling something for $150. Yeah, that's fine, right? right? Or like, you know, you would still buy a Louis Vuitton. You would not question exactly. why Louis Vuitton is thousands of dollars. But when it's a small, sustainable brand is doing the same thing, you tend to question that. So I think like overall on a global scale, it has to be a shift of thinking, you right. know? Mm -hmm. um, because right now, like say I, I have the means to, purchase say a hundred dollar skirt or even like a you know um and a 25 dollar h&m skirt versus something else from a sustainable brand the question is when i'm thinking sustainably one is do i really need that skirt because mm -hmm. you know we've talked about in our sustainability series at the base of everything yes one is buying sustainable but it's also need versus want right yeah. do i need it or do i want it now say i need it right and i can spend 25 or 100. So it's almost like 
you need to think, okay, do I want to buy that $25 H&M skirt that I know will not last me long, will definitely land up in the landfills? Or do I want to spend $100 on something or $50 or $100 on something that I know is well-made, where I know the practices are ethical, sustainable, and the people who made it can also live a livelihood, you know? Yeah. And then it's going to last me many, many years and I can probably pass it down to my daughter. You know, I feel like it, there has to be a shift in thinking right. because I don't see us questioning when a big brand is like selling some coat for like $500 or whatever. But when it comes down to the small businesses who are really trying to make a difference, immediately our thought process is like questioning that. Yeah. And I feel like that dialogue needs to happen because yes, uh, you know, Another big part of sustainability is the price point, right? Yes. Because it's affordability, accessibility. So it's like, how, where is that balance? And what do you think really needs to be done in this space? Yeah, yeah. No, I think this is a great question that I've honestly talked to many people about, especially in the sustainable fashion space. And I think a lot of the reason that people are so willing to quickly shell out so much money for a Louis Vuitton bag or like a Chanel purse or something like that is because the brand value it holds within their friend circles and within their communities. Mm -hmm. And I think specifically, if we want to talk about the South Asian community, since that's where we're in, a lot of us grew up wearing hand-me-downs, um, especially with Indian clothes. Mm -hmm. But as certain groups of South Asians um, be from the middle classes kind of became wealthier and wealthier, as at least I've seen in the U.S., mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of them have encouraged disposability because, you know, it's like, oh, we have money now. Like, you know, throw it away, get something new. Why do you need to reuse it? You know, we're able to afford it kind of mindset. And with that, disposability has become more normal and even the importance of brand value has become more normal as people have climbed the social ladders and have finally been able to attain what they've been aspiring to for so long. So I think there is a huge mindset shift that needs to happen. And something that I personally do that I hope can be helpful tips for people is I honestly view sustainable brands as luxury and not <laughs> brands as luxury because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if we look at the way brands like Chanel and whatnot are, are producing, Chanel bags and their values and Louis Vuitton bags and their values have gone so down in terms of quality compared to what they used to be. And quality of sustainable brands is actually much better than the quality of the of a bags that you would buy at a, at a normal brand um, like these Chanel's and Louis Vuitton's. So personally, I think the, the value that you're getting for your money is a lot better. And you know, it's being well made, you know, you're supporting people that actually deserve that money. And honestly, a lot of sustainable brands just have such unique pieces that mm -hmm. feel even even more luxurious and like a piece of art, honestly. So I like to curate my closet that way. I feel like I have pieces of furniture, pieces of art in my closet. So that's how I like to view sustainable luxury. But on a daily basis, when you do want accessible pieces that you might um, think are more within your budget or your price range, obviously the first thing to, to turn to is either swapping with people or purchasing secondhand and thrifting. I think that's obviously you know a more accessible option if that's what you're looking for. And then when you do want to splurge on something, then go towards sustainable brands because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you will be saving so much more. And to be honest, I don't think I've bought a single item. <laughs> For the past, you know, at least half a year. And 
I think I've saved so much more money than when I used to purchase fast fashion. And I thought I, you know, when I even did make less money than I do now. So, I mean, yeah, this is my firsthand experience. Yeah, no, I actually liked what you said, you know, to consider sustainable brands as luxury, Mm -hmm. because also think about it, right? I can own a Chanel bag and there might be a million other people around the world who will also have the same bag. Yeah. But when it comes to these sustainable brands, what we forget, you know, is that sustainable brands, small sustainable brands, their, their whole mantra is not producing a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand pieces of one garment. Yeah. So where is the uniqueness? Right. You know, so you can actually pride yourself saying that, I'm probably one of the 50 people who actually own this piece. And then it can become a piece of art, you know? Right. So in that sense, it is luxury. So I, I actually, I kind of have an opposite train of thinking. So this is very interesting that, you know, you guys think from this perspective, but I'm thinking about normalizing sustainability as a day-to-day clothing uh, material. So if sustainability is going to be thought as, you know, thinking luxury, think sustainability, then you're almost speaking to a whole different clientele. Whereas the masses, the regular day-to-day people are still going to wear the mass-produced clothing because luxury is beyond their reach. And yes, passing, you know, hand-me-downs are probably, you know, sometimes it is the mindset that really is important to, um, you know, to entertain the hand-me-down clothing. So you're losing probably a majority of the market that will probably benefit from sustainability because this is the market that's actually putting the clothes in the landfill. So I'm actually looking at it from a different way. Maybe sustainability should not be considered luxury. (laughs) It should probably be normalized. And so sustainability brands such as yourself and sustainable brands should kind of get together and talk about how to bring down the price tag of these uh, clothing. So it is accessible to a normal person who, you know, who would rather look at sustainable clothing as doing good to the earth and affordable and will go for it. I think, yes, right now, sustainability is being considered luxury. And I I'm thinking the opposite from what the discussion is going as to, I think it should be normalized. Efforts should be made to decrease the price and help access the production to a lot more people. And I know that it's going to be a giant feat to do that. But um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's really good that you brought up this point because obviously the goal, I mean, even... I, you know, obviously sustainability needs to be the norm, right? And in production for any brand that, that creates, um, I guess in terms of luxury, I meant it more so as something I would probably purchase that isn't a secondhand piece. If I do want to buy something new Mm -hmm. versus something that has already had a life, um, or even supporting a brand. But I think the cost to the cost point, that is something that's just been debated for so long. Um, and something that I think needs a lot of reframing as well, because if you do bring the cost down significantly, you know, how are you going to pay the workers, um, that are creating these clothes in the first place? And, and along with that, you know, I think the fact that clothing is as cheap as a meal or a cup of coffee is something that is just not right mm-hmm. in this current day of, you know, inflation and the way things are priced. I think another thing is that we're just not used to understanding that clothes are priced 
or should be priced this way because that's how much mm. value they hold. And everything else has gone up except for these, you know, clothes, mm-hmm. right? People are spending $30 to $50 on one meal sometimes, or they'll blow money on a weekend at a bar in New York, for example. Mm-hmm. Not that people are of working classes are spending money this way, but I think just reframing is really important because we're already spending this much money on every meal. And buying less and buying well or essentially end up saving you in the long run too. Um, and there are, of course, really important things in order to democratize sustainable fashion. And I, and I do feel like thrifting is already democratizing a lot of that or even shopping your own closet or swapping. So I think, um, like you said, there just needs to be more awareness about the variety of ranges of what sustainable fashion is. Like, yes, there is something for when you do have more out of your pocket, but there are options also if you don't want to pay any money. Right. Just use what's in your closet mm-hmm. or swap with someone mm-hmm. or thrift. Mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> of course there needs to be a lot to be done, but yeah. Going back to the days when we grew, when we were growing up in India, mm-hmm. I've never, never in our closets, we're never overflowing with the clothes like it does nowadays. Right. Even when there were Diwali sales and stuff, it's just that one set or two sets of clothes for the entire year. And then a few clothes that for occasions and exactly you know people there was there were hand-me-downs and stuff like that so I guess you're right it's two things one is the mindset you know kind of trying to educate people about what it is that's killing the environment especially the mass production of these clothes and Mm -hmm. landfills and stuff and two actually getting together and saying who actually dictates the price I mean why is this blouse should be twenty dollars I mean why who who comes up with these price tags Mm -hmm. And trying to also educate people as to what it is that people need to see when they are actually buying um, outfits. And third, sustainability, luxury collection is there, but sustainability can be a norm mm-hmm. where, you know, trying to get how to produce sustainable clothes with the lesser price and make it affordable for someone who probably is not searching for a luxury uh, kind of piece every now and then. So I guess there's so much work to be done, but these conversations are so exciting. Yeah. yeah. And very important. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. So you just launched your fashion brand rooted in sustainability and ethical fashion. Yeah. So talk to us about your journey and your mission to create Take a Collective. Yeah, for sure. So, oh, wow. Where do I start? I mean, I'm someone who has always wanted to start a fashion brand just you know, growing up, always being surrounded by so much like arts and culture and even studying it. So personally, I'd always wanted to start one, but I knew that whatever I created needed to do more or give more back than what it is taking from our planet, especially, you know, with that being my main focus. Uh, Originally, Tega Collective started off as a brand that was meant to be size inclusive, gender inclusive, and just focused on accessibility and sustainable fashion. But I guess as I got deeper into learning about sustainable fashion and made quite a few friends in different indigenous communities in India, um, after being on different panels, talking about sustainability and things like that, I realized that for me, at least, um, and, and a lot of indigenous communities, just it's really important to kind of go back to our roots and work with communities that have been sustainable from the beginning. And so 
with that, I guess the idea of Tega Collective was born is to, you know, amplify uh, Adivasi or indigenous communities in India and their work, because a lot of their work has been historically stolen, um, a lot of their knowledge, um, and they've been driven out of their lands to build things like dams, mines, and whatnot, um, even though, you know, their original homes were in a lot of forests or, you know, whatever natural landscape that they were inhabiting at the time. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of their clothes are actually appropriated by big brands in the West, like Moschino, for example, like in Italy, or even within India, with a lot of, um, for example, you know, Warli artwork by the Warli tribes that primarily, you know, live in uh, Maharashtra, right? Mm-hmm. Their artwork is actually traditionally used for a lot of ceremonial purposes. But with this essentially being turned into a print and being mass produced all over India without actually having Warli artists create that work, mm-hmm. uh, they've been put out of work for their own art. And they're not even really recognized as much. Like people just think, okay, Warli art is a type of art. Mm-hmm. They don't realize that there's a tribe behind it that it belongs to. Mm. And so that was a really big and important conversation that we wanted to kind of shed light on and also just bring that work back to the artisans whose culture it belongs to. Mm-hmm. And so that, yeah, that's one of our biggest goals at Tega Collective is collaborating with different artists and groups, bringing awareness to their craft and their culture. And even, you know, hopefully being able to pay them for every time they share their knowledge and being able to create articles and oral histories and, you know, folklore and even videos and kind of add that and share that with the world and, and bring awareness to it. So that's, that's essentially our goal in a long form. Mm-hmm. And with creating, you know, our brand, there's, there's so much that goes into it, but I'll just stop there for now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I... <laughs> I think we would actually love to hear that yeah, because exactly. I feel like with the recent influx of sustainable mm-hmm. brands, you know, yes. um, someone who's trying to make better choices, you know, because right. I feel like, you know, transparency is an important part of what sustainable brands should be doing. Yes. Um, so what is that like, you know, if you can like tell us in brief what that end-to-end process actually looks like? Yes, of course. So for us, with our first collaboration, we've collaborated with Lambani Artisans, Um, which are a nomadic group of people present all over India. And the ones that we're working with are present in Karnataka, Mm -hmm. um, specifically in Bellari, which is actually uh, really big for iron ore mining. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. And a lot of uh, the artisans there and the groups there actually, you know, there's just a lot of um, destruction from the climate, essentially because there's so much dust from the iron ore mining, mm-hmm. um, there's not that much vegetation as well because of that. So that is a big, you know, environmental justice issue that a lot of tribal communities are facing. And in the face of that, you know, they're trying to live, they're trying to make a profit. So our first collaboration is actually with them. And a significant percentage of our proceeds actually go back to these communities, obviously, to do with it, whatever they want. Um, also trying to create wealth distribution within the fashion world. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. many times, you know, the designers are at, or and stakeholders, share, sorry, shareholders are like at the top um, with a lot of the people actually creating and touching and feeling the pieces being paid the least. And so kind of reimagining how wealth could be distributed within a brand was something that was important to us. And 
also, you know, being able to give a proper share of the profits back to these communities right now, it is 18%, hopefully trying to increase that in the future. But it's on top of what all, they're already paid for the pieces. So, and having that money be able to go towards land back initiatives mm-hmm. for them. So that that's a bit of our business models, collaborating with different communities and um, specifically in the South and the North, because those are underrepresented regions of India. Mm-hmm. And with each collection, you know, we co-create with them, you know, choose different silhouettes that might be more basic everyday silhouettes, like crop top, a t-shirt, um, shorts. And then they're sort of the textile designers designing uh, what embroidery goes on it um, or what could look interesting um, and, and what colors they want to use. And, and we kind of co-create in that way. And in terms of the fabrics and the dyes mm-hmm. and the operations themselves, uh, with the fabrics, something that's really important to us is a lot of the time when you think about sustainable fabrics, people are like, okay, what is the most sustainable fabric to use? And obviously there's no such thing as the most sustainable fabric. That's right, yeah. But honestly, the most sustainable fabric is most likely what is locally available, Mm -hmm. what is local to the natural biodiversity of the region. And and even, you know, bolstering the systems with native plants that were there pre, you know, introduced invasive species, because there's so many invasive species that are just not native to certain regions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for us, what they what they use a lot in their clothing is kadi, mm-hmm. and um, we also thought airy silk would be you know piece silk that is made without killing silkworms would be a good natural fiber to be able to use for I guess more lightweight pieces, and so that's how we came up with our fabric choices. You know, in the future we actually want to explore lotus stem fibers and things like that, and. With natural dyes, we use, you know, madder root, indigo, marigold flowers for our collection because a lot of our collection is red, periwinkle, and green. Mm-hmm. So those are the dyes that we use. And yeah, basically, you know, for even more transparency, our garment workers are located in Bangalore. Mm-hmm. Artisans are who do the embroidery of the actual pieces are in Bellari. And um, so everything is located within the same state, all of our operations. And in terms of shipping, you know, we have me who's running the shipping operations in the U.S. and then our team who's running the shipping operations out of Bangalore. So whatever country is closer to that region um, or even within the countries, that's kind of how we uh, have distributed our shipping. So I know that was a lot, but I tried to explain it in a nutshell. No, I mean, it's it's really nice to hear someone actually you know, break it down because mm-hmm. I feel like us as an everyday consumer, we don't know these things. And, yeah. you know, I feel like, again, you know, going back to the whole question of like pricing and all of that, these are the conversations that need to be brought to the forefront mm-hmm. yeah. to educate, you know, people as to what what it really takes, you know, to be a sustainable brand and to just produce a single piece of garment. Yeah. There's also a big thing within, you know, with fashion and with sustainability and all of that and climate crisis even, is the amount of water that is used. Yeah. You know, like uh, denim, you know, I, I don't... Yeah, I, I was like, we had that in our podcast, yeah. Yes, we had, we talked about it in our 
a sustainability series mm-hmm. an insane amount of water is used so i feel like these are things that uh you know dyes and fabrics and you know sourcing it's it's very important conversations to have you know yeah. so yeah thank you for sharing that that that's really insightful Is there any way to scale this kind of a brand? Because I think that's where we're we're stuck with the affordability, right? Is there any way to scale this bigger than what it is? I will say for us, um, I think the goal has always been to be a small to mid-sized business mm-hmm. and never to really scale too much mm-hmm. because I think when you scale, you lose the sustainability aspect of the business. Right. That's the um, challenge. Yeah. And, and that's the challenge. And especially when you are working with indigenous communities, you don't want it to get to a point to where they feel like, okay, like I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. You know, it needs to come from a place of love and a place of interest and a place of wanting to share their culture because this is their culture at the end of the day that they're sharing with the world. Mm-hmm. So to the degree that they want to share it is to the degree that we want to be able to scale it, to be honest. And I guess getting back to the affordability part, I think the only way we will reach that is with reframing and with it being normalized with people being able to purchase secondhand because right now secondhand is the affordable option. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if, you know, for people who want to purchase new clothing, I think buying less and investing is probably uh, the way to go, or at mm-hmm. least that's how I've kind of reframed everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I think, you know, if anything, this idea of degrowth, which is essentially everyone kind of scaling down their operations and not mass producing so much unnecessary waste is something that the industries need to move towards. I know it's a big, it's, it's a concept that's been, um, you know, recently in the media. I'm not sure, you know, what groups of people are aware of it and what aren't, but the idea of people just scaling down the and only producing what is necessary and not excess. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times brands will produce excess because their manufacturers want certain minimums exactly. to bring a yes. to bring a price down, right? Yes. And so there just needs to be an understanding in the industry from manufacturers to garment workers, like the entire supply chain mm-hmm. just needs to kind of bring their operations yeah. down yeah. to only what is is necessary instead of overproducing. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, very important. So, you know, um, you're a techie by day, an entrepreneur, an activist. Right. And for those of you, uh, you know, our listeners who already follow you on social media, you're an incredible artist. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. I think, you know, Niha, I've been like obsessed and just amazed by all the stunning murals you paint, but you actually paint them on yourself. Yes. You know, you've done many, many a series uh, rooted in educating people about certain fabrics, printing techniques, folk art tales, and so much more. How and when was that talent born? And, you know, uh, yeah, how did that idea come about? Because I feel like in today's space of content creators and, you know, influencers and what have you, you're a niche that I don't think anyone is in in the space, you know? So, yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, no, thank you. That's just very honestly so kind of you to say. Um, For me, I think that love kind of, like I mentioned, when I lived in India, I actually studied art, um, you know, formally Mm -hmm. throughout high school. 
And um, within that, we would learn so much about the different Indian art forms and have to, you know, kind of recreate that in our own style and and whatnot. And so that's when I was uh, educated about Indian art forms in general. And I also realized even, you know, when when we were going shopping with like our when it comes to fashion specifically. So for painting, you know, I kind of grew up doing art since I was about five years old. And I guess that skill was kind of built from there and, you know, doing theses and things like that on different topics. Um, but like you mentioned, I also do educate on block printing and different textiles and fabrics. And so I think that interest came when going out and about with my mom and grandmother, when we were meeting different weaving communities or even going and getting things stitched by the tailor and our parents and everyone know about all of these fabrics, but people in my generation have no idea Mm -hmm. what any Mm -hmm. of these textiles are, how they're made. Even the value and appreciation for it isn't quite there um, to the level that our moms and grandmothers have. And I was like, this is something that's just personally sad to me. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of them want to know, but they just don't know where to start. And as as I was growing up and I'm like, oh, you know, I'll be attending weddings. I'm going to have children. This is just something I want to know. And so that's where the idea came to kind of share... um, as art and fashion, I just always thought it kind of went together. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I want to make videos and I want to paint on myself and just kind of educate people and and tell them about where these things come from and educate myself too in the process about these different textiles and these different block printing techniques. And hopefully, you know, we can learn together. So that's kind of how that started. And I'm so glad that so many people have been enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's beautiful it's a treat it's a visual treat that's great uh neha um but what what are your next big projects in the pipeline like what's your vision for tega collective in the near future i know it's like two questions combined but i think it has like one follows the other <laughs> yeah no i agree um i guess in the future we do have other communities that we're excited to be collaborating with specifically in the northeast um using lotus stem fibers like i mentioned and I guess building out our indigenous knowledge hub properly, mm-hmm. um, because there is so much knowledge that we, we want to be able to share. And I truly think that listening and following the lead of indigenous communities all over the world is what is going to essentially help us fight the climate crisis mm-hmm. because they know the land, they know the earth the best. And I honestly don't know why they are you know, not in positions of power when it comes to the climate crisis. Yeah. It's just truly sad. And recently I actually attended a youth conference where they were drafting um, different climate demands for COP27, actually. Mm-hmm. And there was uh, indigenous youth from the U.S. that came and added their demands And I just think they need to be given a lot more of a space to be able to contribute to climate policy and bring in their wisdom, whether it be through fashion, through agriculture, you know, through all of those different avenues. Yeah. And so our goal is to hopefully increase awareness about the importance of indigenous knowledge and the fight for the climate crisis as much as as possible, because they are the ones who truly know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the need of the hour. I feel like, you know, that's true. That's wonderful. 
Thank you. Mm-hmm. So before we end, what are three things every one of us can do to positively impact our planet on a daily basis? Um, well, that's a big question. <laughs> but I mean, I guess simple things that you can do. I think one that we forget a lot is to truly rest. And if you have access to outdoor spaces, you know, go and get outside. Because as much as we, you know, want to to save our planet, it's really important that we enjoy what our Earth has to offer because we are part of the planet too. People are part mm-hmm. of the planet mm-hmm. and prioritizing your health and connection to the outdoors and literally planting your feet in, in the grass. Yes. As, as like, as a, uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. True. As like crazy or as simple or as, you know, lazy as some people think it is. It's actually just truly important for us to do mm-hmm. every single day. Otherwise, I feel like we're losing our connection to community and the earth by being isolated in our homes and not really, you know, stepping foot into the outdoors as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So I think that's like probably the most bare minimum thing that you can do. But obviously, you know, beyond that, I always try my best to only use what I need and kind of repurpose I think repurposing is just such a big and easy thing that you can do, you know, repurposing containers, as many of us have done with different ice cream containers, kind of, mm-hmm. yes. you know, <laughs> using them, even repurposing your own clothes and upcycling them and just composting. Just like those are like the things that you can do on your own at home. Yeah. But beyond that, um, I know I might be listing way more than three things. Okay. <laughs> um you know, getting connected to the earth, getting um, kind of a sustainable lifestyle at home, and also advocating and being with community. Mm. I think a large, those are the three things that I would do, because we often forget how important it is to be involved in your local communities when it comes to mm-hmm. helping out with the climate crisis, mm-hmm. and kind of taking advocacy offline into, you know, real life spaces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And building community because that's also what's going to help us get through this. Um, you know, we're not all alone. And I think the capitalism narrative that is, or even just thing that we live in, just pushes people to be alone and individualistic. Whereas collectivism is a huge part of the climate or to fighting the climate crisis. So, yeah, and three short points <laughs> connection to earth, you know, living your sustainable lifestyle and being in community and advocating. I love all that. excellent points. Yeah. Excellent, excellent yeah. points. I'm sure that, that that is pretty much what the world needs right now. Yeah. You know, kind of um, collectivism. And I think you made a very good point about this. We all think like we have, we're just our own individual mm-hmm. people, individual needs. Mm-hmm. But this climate crisis can be only handled when the whole world comes to think about it in unison. So good points. Yeah. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Niha. It was an absolute delight. And uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy this episode. Yeah. And I learned a lot. So thank you so much. And keep up the good work. Oh, wow. Um, And we look forward to hearing more success stories coming from you and from all the sustainability brands and the people that we've um, interviewed. So looking forward to many more wonderful things from you. 
Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, I loved having this conversation with both of you. I think it truly felt like I was just literally sitting with you and having chai and just talking about this. Um, Mission and accomplished. Yes, yes. It's just so excited to see how your podcast continues to, you know, talk about such important things and truly honored to be on it as a listener myself. So thank you so much. Yay. Thank you. Nothing makes us happier. <laughs> So until next time and our next Chivization, everyone, we'll see you. Bye. 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 You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Do continue to give us your valuable feedback via ratings, reviews, and hit the subscribe or follow button so you don't miss out on our new episodes. Your support means the world to us. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at chai underscore break underscore podcast to get the scoop on our latest episodes dropping every Wednesday. You can also write to us at chai break podcast at gmail.com.